The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. God, you are so good. Your Holy Spirit testifies that within our heart. It's a song that so many of us have been singing since our Sunday school days. And yet, even as seasoned adults, it holds such a special meaning into our hearts that you are so good to us. And so we pray that in that understanding and that faith, we would come to your word with an open heart. Sometimes the radicalness of your truth causes fear within us. But we know that perfect love drives out all fear. And so we pray that your word of truth would come to us with your love, that we could receive it as you desire us to in faith. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in the uh, last several messages in this Surrendered series, I've been talking about this critical role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And um, it's really almost unthinkable to imagine the Christian life apart from this vital role of the Holy Spirit doing so much of that work in us. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are convicted of our sins that even brings us to that place of need that I need forgiveness before God. It's also through the Spirit that we are led into a life of worship as our eyes are open to see the beauty and the worth of God. Um, and I think that is actually so vital to everything else that flows out of it, is when we took a look at that teaching a few weeks back, it's this message in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. And so in our hearts, we see his worth, his beauty. And it is this vision of Jesus as this glorious and reigning king that then empowers the life of obedience, not grudgingly out of duty alone, but out of passion for that glory. What I want to say is that Christianity is so much more than a mere belief system. It is a life totally surrendered for the glory of God. It is not about trying our best in our own strength to follow God's commands, but about inviting that inner working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do what we are not capable of doing by sheer willpower alone. And I, I think I've hinted at this before, and I just want to make this so clear at the introduction of the message today is it is frustrating to me. It's incredibly frustrating to me how much of the Bible's teaching on the Holy Spirit has been hijacked by this debate between these charismatic and non-charismatic camps that we find in the church today. And I think it's a false choice that I have to either choose precision about my doctrine and have a deep commitment to Scripture, or that I can seek the filling of the Holy Spirit and desire a full experience of God in my heart. But it sort of feels that way at times in the church, doesn't it? 
is you've got to pick one of these camps and decide what label that you're going to wear as a Christian. I think we need to recover the role of the Holy Spirit from this debate in search of what Bill Jackson coined the radical middle, the radical middle. You know, often when we think about taking a middle position, it tends to be viewed pretty negatively, doesn't it? Um, When you take a middle position in a debate, it's usually viewed as a position of weakness. It's the position of waffling. You don't know which side is correct. And so you're stuck straddling the fence, not knowing what's right, what's wrong. But this idea of the radical middle describes a position of strength that sees dangers in the extreme, can we advance the slide? Yeah. That sees dangers in the extreme positions of both sides and pursues with passion, not waffling, and conviction for a third way. Okay? And in this case of the Holy Spirit, let me be a little more specific. This third way is to hold to the highest standard the importance of the Bible and doctrine in informing the Christian life while also believing that the Spirit still works in miraculous ways in our times. I want to argue that that is the position of the radical middle. You know, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis shares this time when he was sharing his faith with the Royal Air Force. Lewis had to share that he got up in the middle of his talk and sort of confronted Lewis. And this is what this officer said to C.S. Lewis. He said, I don't really have any patience for all of this theology talk that you're talking about today. And then he said this, but it doesn't mean I'm not religious. Because he said to Lewis, I know there's a God. I know there's a God. Because he said, one night when I was alone in the desert during the war, I felt him. I felt him. And so he told Lewis, to anyone who felt the real thing, all your talk about doctrine seems so petty, so unreal. Now, Lewis's response to this officer is interesting and it's informative. Lewis writes, Now, in a sense, I quite agreed with this man. I think he had probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from the exper- that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. This is C.S. Lewis saying this. In other words, he acknowledged acknowledges two things that may surprise you. First, he acknowledges that this man may very well have had an encounter with the living God in that desert. And then secondly, he also acknowledges that talks on Christian doctrine are actually less real than what that man may have experienced in that desert when he felt God in his heart. Lewis then makes the comparison with a person standing at the beach and experiencing the Atlantic Ocean. 
hearing the waves crashing. You're smelling the salty sea. And then after that experience, being at the beach, you go home and you pull out a map of the Atlantic Ocean and you look at it. And our, Lewis says, that too is going from something that is real to something that is less real. Being at the beach is more real than looking at the map of the ocean. And who in their right mind would choose to experience the Atlantic Ocean through a map rather than at the beach in person? The map experience, in other words, pales in comparison to the real experience of the ocean. But then, Lewis argues this. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience just as real as the one you could have from the beach. Only while yours would be a single glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you are content with walks on the beach, you own your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be more used than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that map of the Atlantic Ocean is the collective experience and wisdom of thousands of people who have experienced firsthand the ocean and have even sailed it. And if you ever want to leave the beach and really experience the ocean by crossing it, that map is going to be absolutely essential for your journey. Relating this to Christianity, Lewis concludes, Now theology is like the map. Merely learning and thinking about the Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. Doctrines are not God. They are only a kind of map. But that map is based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God. Experiences compared with which any thrills or pious feelings you and I are likely to get on our own are very elementary and very confused. And secondly, if you want to get any further, you must use the map. I think Lewis captures well what I'm talking about, about this idea of the radical middle. We need to uphold the importance and the power of experiencing God firsthand in a living relationship with him. That's that experience of being at the beach and experiencing the ocean. But we also need to embrace the protection of scripture and sound doctrine that guards us from making false conclusions about God based solely on our singular experience of him, which at times can lead us astray. 
Well, in today's message, I want to actually circle back a little bit to this topic of faith with which we started the series when I talked about this idea of pledging allegiance to Jesus in the surrendered life. And I want to begin by saying this. It's an honest confession that this issue of faith is one that I have sincerely wrestled with through much of my Christian life. And maybe that's a little disconcerting to hear that from your pastor. Um, But it's in many ways continues to remain this mysterious thing to me, this idea of faith. Faith is so central to the message of the Bible. And yet in many ways, I struggle to grasp what exactly is faith. What does it mean, really, to have faith in God? And what is so vital about faith that without it, I cannot even please God? We're not commanded in the Bible to simply ask help of God, but we're commanded to ask it in faith. It's a very critical ingredient to the formula in our seeking, in our prayers. Faith is required. If you look at James chapter 5, verse 13 to 15, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then James says this, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What is this prayer of faith that results in healing and other answers from God? In that first message in this series, I pointed out that One of the ways faith is translated legitimately in Scripture is faithfulness or loyalty or even allegiance. But there is also a sense in which this word faith includes the idea of belief. What do you believe to be true? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 2 captures this essence of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is how they got approval in the eyes of God was through this singular demonstration of faith in their lives. And he says, what this faith represents is an assurance of things hoped for or a conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is pictured as a confidence of a reality that you cannot see with your eyes, but you have to believe in your hearts. That word assurance that is used here is actually a really important word. It it really is steeped in Greek philosophy. In in the Greek, it's the word hypostasis. It captures this idea that the Greeks thought of that beyond this physical reality that live with these chairs and these walls, these buildings, these trees outside, there lies even a realer reality than the physical world. This 
foundational substance that they called ultimate reality. And that is the word that the writer of Hebrews is using here to talk about faith. He's saying that faith is believing that there is an undergirding foundational spiritual reality that you cannot see with your eyes and yet nevertheless are invited to walk into by faith. I trust that there is this deeper reality, not visible to my eyes, but visible in my heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 seems to confirm this view of faith. For it says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. What Paul is saying there is our eyes give us the ability to walk around in the visible world and avoid stumbling into things through that vision. And in the same way, faith allows us to navigate, to walk in God's reality without stumbling. And that walking is really important. The walking. Because true faith never remains in the realm of the theoretical, but always results in action, in a life of faith, in everyday decision-making, what we choose to do and not to do. In fact, the great chapter in the Bible on faith, Hebrews 11, is basically one long testimony of that truth, of people who stepped out in faith and that faith was always demonstrated in action. Just give you a few examples of it. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household, even before there was a storm cloud in the sky. This guy built a boat. <laughs> Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's again, this is faith in action. Abraham, go, leave the safety and security of your family. I'm not even telling you where you're going yet. Just pick up your bags and leave. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, she did what you need to do to have a child. Okay, I don't, I don't want to get into the details of that. But that was a faith action that Sarah took. Hebrews 11, verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled, after they had been encircled for seven days, like fools marching around, making a lot of noise. Seven days, they must have felt so stupid. But by faith, they obeyed before the walls came tumbling down in Jericho. In other words, Faith is not only believing in God's reality, but acting on that belief. Matthew Bates puts it like this. By means of faith, the true people of God are willing to act decisively in the visible world, not for reasons that are immediately apparent, but because an unseen, yet even more genuine underlying substance, God's reality, 
compels the action. Okay? We're driven by an entirely different vision of the world based on faith that cause us at times to behave in ways that doesn't make sense to the world around us. But here's the question. What exactly is the underlying belief that we are asked to claim? What is this foundational reality that we believe in that results in this kind of radical life? In other words, what is the substance of our belief? What exactly is being asked of us to believe in? I mean, based on the examples that I just read for you of Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Jericho, what it sounds like is you're supposed to believe that you're always going to get the miracle, right? If you just believe hard enough, miracles will happen. And if you read on in verse 32 to 35, it seems to support this argument. In verse 32 of Hebrews 11, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These are all miracles based in the lives of people who demonstrated faith. But then look at what the writer of Hebrews says about others who also live by faith as you continue in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. (laughs) Do you see what he says about this whole other part of the testimony of faith? That was the fruit of their faith was they ended up living like animals in their day, hiding for their lives and being tortured and put to death. In other words, if the substance of our faith is to always expect deliverance, always to expect the miracle, then how can these examples of suffering be an expression of faith in God? It's confusing, isn't it? It seems to pull us in two different directions. Because on the one hand, the early part of Hebrews says, just believe in God, believe in the miracle, believe in the gift, and you'll get the gift. You'll get the miracle. And then he ends it by saying, oh yeah, and by the way, there were a whole lot of other people that were tortured (laughs) because of their faith. And they suffered horribly because of their faith. I think Hebrews 11.6 really clarifies the issue for us. Because in Hebrews 11.6 it says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those 
who seek him. What is the substance of the faith that we're called to display? It is first of all to believe that God exists in every situation of your life. He is present. Listen, in some ways this seems like a silly teaching point because I know most of you in this room claim to be followers of Jesus. And you say, yeah, I believe God exists. But I want to press the point a little harder than that and say, do you really? Do you really live your life life as though God exists? Because the truth is, I think the witness of our own lives often betrays that truth. When you've been wronged and an injustice is done against you, is God really in that room with you? Then why do you get so vindictive and angry at that person? How little perseverance we demonstrate in difficult times. Is God really existing in your life? When we are so cowardly to share our faith when Christianity is being attacked in our workplace or our school, even in our home. The writer of Hebrews doesn't pull any punches. You've got to believe that God exists. You've got to believe that he is a, the most solid reality in any situation you face. And then he says you also have to believe that he is good. That his desire is always for your good. To want to give you what you need. He desires to reward you as you seek him. And that's another tough one, isn't it? Maybe even as we sang that song earlier today, God is so good, you struggle to be able to echo those lyrics in your heart. I don't know. Is God really always good to me? It doesn't always feel like it. Sometimes I feel like he's not so good. When Jesus announced the gospel in the gospels, like I said earlier, he simply said this. This was his gospel. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. It's not coming. It's not almost here. With my coming, the kingdom of God has arrived because I'm the king. (laughs) I am that king. That's faith. That's faith is to say God's kingdom is here. The rule of Jesus is now. And my king is here for me. For my good. And I want to say this. I think that faith means sometimes we are rewarded with miraculous answers in our time of need. Amen to that. But it also means that sometimes we are rewarded for our faith, not in this life, but the life to come. Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 40 says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, 
I need to clarify something because I think this is where a lot of confusion enters in when we talk about faith. Faith is not a precondition to earn a reward from God for answered prayer, okay? And this may be one of the most important things that I'm saying to you today because I think this is the source of so much of the confusion of faith. Because the logic was like this, well, without faith, I cannot please God. So now I feel this pressure to conjure up the faith so that I could please him. I'm going to say it again, and I'll try to explain it a little. Faith is not a precondition that earns a reward from God in the form of answered prayer. It is not some kind of magical key that unlocks God's power. Faith is not wishful thinking, meaning like if I only hope for this strongly enough and believe it can happen, then I think it will. Faith is actual belief, (laughs) not hope for belief. Faith is actual belief in a reality that leads us into action. Um, Dallas Willard describes faith like this. He says, it's sort of like just turning on a light switch. And what he means by it is this. When you turn on a light switch, why do you do that to get the lights on? Every time you see a light switch and you want the room to be bright, you don't work. What does it, what does it mean to say, I have faith that this light switch will turn the lights on in the room? You're not sitting there every time you approach a switch going, I hope I have the faith to make it work this time. Because up to now, I've had pretty good luck. And, and you're going, you know, I, I really believe I'm going to do this. I really believe that when I do this, lights are going to come on. I'm kind of doubting a little, so I'm not going to hit it yet. So you're kind of working up the faith. And it's like magical thinking, right? If I believe hard enough and passionately enough, when I hit that switch, something about that faith is going to turn on that light. That's such a silly view of it. I just fundamentally believe that electrically this switch is connected to that light bulb. So when I flip it, I know the light's going to come on. And Willard says, that's faith. That's faith. It's not about me stirring up something in my heart that moves the heart of God. And makes him say, all right, you crossed the threshold and you've earned it. I'll do this for you. It's simply to say, I believe and I hit the switch. Well, what is it that I believe? Well, it's that in any circumstance of my life, God is always with me. And he's always good. And he's always wanting the best for me. And out of that foundational assurance, which is called faith, flows all of the choices that I make in my life. 
All of my actions are oriented around that conviction. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews says, without faith you cannot live a life that pleases God. Because without that faith we would never step forward in action, demonstrating trust in him. Without faith we would never even think to ask him for the help that we need that he can provide. That is why without faith we cannot please God because it doesn't even orient us to a God-seeking posture in life. And one question you can ask, but, but what in the analogy, what doesn't make sense is what do you mean when you say you hit the flip, you, you, you flip the switch? What are you actually doing when you're saying you flip the switch? Well, I, I think one way we could describe it is that's prayer. That's prayer. The evidence of true faith is demonstrated in the expectancy with which we pray. I think that's probably the most honest indicator of whether faith is alive in you or not. Do you really believe that prayer makes a difference? You know, uh, Dr. Ron Walburn, during the Refocus Weekend on that first night, talked about this sort of theoretical faith that many of us are walking around with, but when it comes to actual practical faith, it's pretty much absent. And he described it as this term of the God of the last resort, right? The God of the last resort. It means do everything you can by your power, and when you're at the end of your rope and you have nothing left, no other options, why don't you try prayer? See what happens. But I think what the Bible is saying is if God is the ultimate reality around which your entire life is centered, then prayer would be the place of first resort that you would turn to. You would believe that praying to this God is the most important thing you can do in every situation that you face in your life. And I, I want to ask all of you in this room today that question. Is there an expectancy in your life that when you pray it matters? That anything changes? That miracles can happen? That God can heal the sick? God can save the lost? I think the truth is a lot of us struggle with our prayer life. <laughs> The truth is, we're doing all we can to prop up this prayer life that's on life support rather than our prayer life propping us up in strength. And I think another expression of this faithlessness is the weak prayers we pray that in essence ask nothing of God. Do you know what I mean? Just almost meaningless prayers that we wouldn't even know what it would look like if it was answered. These generic, just help them, Lord. <laughs> Be with them. I, I don't want to cut down those prayers. It's okay to say that. But would you ever dare to ask God to show up in power and do something amazing that only he can do? Do you have the faith to pray a prayer like that? Or are you too worried about the disappointment if that prayer 
doesn't get answered. I think we've already established this isn't some magical formula that gives us a guaranteed answer every time of a miracle. But what it's saying is that unrelentingly, the truest thing that I know about my life is that God is here and that he is real and that he is good. And everything I do, every choice that I make, every decision, everything I move toward flows out of that fundamental belief in my life. And I want to say this as I close up here and wrap up. You cannot will yourself to this faith, right? I hope you can see that. I cannot force myself by sheer will of desire to believe in something any harder than I actually do. This has to be a work of God in us. And I just want to offer you two ways in which God accomplishes that work of growing our faith. The first is through the word, through the word. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As you dwell richly in the teachings of scripture, your faith will grow. As you hear these stories of God and read about his qualities and understand all of the things that God represents and all that he is, there is power in scripture to to bear testimony of God. You don't have to try to conjure it up by your own strength. Scripture has that power to put faith in your heart, to cause you to believe in the God that is described in that book. And then the second way in which God grows faith in us is through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 17. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you hear that? That is the Holy Spirit's ministry to make Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. It is the Holy Spirit's work in you to enable you to believe in an unseen reality that you cannot see with your eyes but is so real in your heart that you would lay down your life for that belief and go to your death for it. Let's pray. The surrendered life is a life of faith. It is walking by faith, not by sight. And I I wonder if, as we close out our service today, there could be a place of real, raw honesty in your own hearts to evaluate your own faith based on Hebrews 11.6. says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. And I just want to ask you that in your life right now. How real is the existence of God in your life right now? And how real is the belief that the God that exists is good? He is so good to me. If you look at circumstances, it's going to weaken your faith. But if you look to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit, your faith can be strengthened to enable you to believe what your eyes do not see, but is a reality more real than the visible world around us. And, you know, there's that pathetic story of this father of this demon-possessed boy, the Gospel of Luke, where he's wanting so desperately for a miracle of a healing for his son. And Jesus confronts him with that very issue. Do you believe I can do this? And the father in his desperation says, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. And then in that moment of honesty says, help my unbelief. I can't even with all of the love that I have for my suffering son, I can't conjure this faith that you're asking me to have in you, Jesus. And so he says, help my unbelief, Jesus. How how do I believe more when I have this doubt? And Jesus can help us in that doubt and in that unbelief. And he can cause a faith to grow in us that can lead to a radical life of faith in which we can see miracles happening in Jesus' name through our prayers. And it also means we can endure the greatest suffering when those prayers are not answered in this life because our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So could I just invite you to pray? And would you just ask for that work of the Spirit, that work of the Word to be done? Strengthen my faith, God. Help me to see you more clearly so that out of that vision of Christ, out of the vision of who you are, I can walk powerfully in this life, not by sight, but by faith. Let's just pray that as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.